If you speak the truth, have a foot in the stirrup. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and this is episode number 576, Cyborg Vivarium, with guest James Polis, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Saturday, October 30th, 2021, Devil's Night, a concept I'm mostly familiar with from the first movie, the first Crow movie, the one that uh, Brandon Lee gave his life to bring us. An Alex Proyas film, by the way, an early Alex Proyas film, and Alex Proyas went on to direct two really good films, in my opinion, uh, iRobot and Dark City, and then a film that I haven't seen, but which everybody says is terrible. I think it's called Gods of Egypt. But the late Roger Ebert would spend uh, inordinate amounts of time praising Dark City for its visual generosity, and I certainly agree. But that is way off topic. The topic here is what the heck are the, the ecosystem of algorithms and little personal electronic devices that we all have pretty much on our persons at all time? I mean, I've never yet taken a cell phone into the shower, but <laughs> some of them are, you know, water resistant. But the author, who is the guest on this week's podcast, I, this week's podcast, as if I put these free podcasts out weekly <laughs> on this episode of the Sea Realm Podcast is James Polis, and he's the author of an upcoming book, and I'm going to do you a great favor by introducing it to you in a way that he and his cohorts at the Claremont Institute haven't thought to do, and that is to tell you that the title of the book is Human, Comma, Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. As soon, I've, I've heard that repeated, humanforever.us, time and time again on the American Mind podcast, and it just never sticks in my head properly. When I go to look for it online, I'm looking for forever human or staying human, remaining human. I always want to put human at the end. Human, comma, forever. The Digital Politics of Spiritual War by James Polis. And I'm on the site now, uh, humanforever.us, no comma. Here is the pitch at the top of the page. In a scorching, searching guide to saving our souls from the digital apocalypse, James Polis shows how the swarm of programs and devices unleashed by our leaders has transformed our lives and defied our dreams, throwing the future into terrifying doubt. Rising above the din of the discourse, he reveals how the first generation of the digital age can retake control of our technology by restoring our full humanity, and how their parents must save them from the new cyborg system bent on ensuring they never come of age. So I won't say a whole lot to introduce this conversation because if you're a longtime listener to the Sea Realm podcast, the themes are already familiar to you. And at the very beginning of the recorded interview, I asked James to not only introduce himself, but to introduce the Claremont Institute. And uh, as I mentioned, I first heard James and I first heard mention of his book on the American Mind podcast, which is one aspect, you know, one outgrowth of the Claremont Institute. So I want you to uh, form an opinion of James and the Claremont Institute by listening to this thoughtful conversation you're about to hear. And then at the end of the podcast, I will read you at least the above the table of contents description of the Institute on Wikipedia. 
Wikipedia, who at this point, I'm sure nobody considers to be an objective source of information on anything other than strictly factual stuff. Like, you know, who played Duke Leto Atreides in the 1984 Dune film? You can trust Wikipedia for that kind of stuff. But anywhere where a spin can be introduced, man, <laughs> I'm dizzy. All right, here is my conversation with James Polis. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. C stands for consciousness. You are listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm speaking with James Polis. James is the executive editor of The American Mind, an online publication of the Claremont Institute. They're also a podcast, and it is on the podcast that I discovered James. He's the author of The Art of Being Free, a study of Tocqueville's democracy in America, and is the contributing editor of American Affairs. And you also have a new book coming out. Uh, what's Well, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. And what's the new book? The new book is Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. If you want to be among the very first to know when the NFT goes live and when the book goes on sale, just hop on over to humanforever.us, humanforever.us, plug in your email, and you are in. Goodness, NFT, you're not some kind of cultist, are you? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> so the book is being published how? Uh, the book is being published on chain. It will be available for purchase in Bitcoin. You can do that at canonic.xyz. So you can not only pay for it in Bitcoin, but it's published on the Bitcoin blockchain? That is correct. How does Immutable. that work? Uh, how does that work? That is a technical question, but really, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Canonic is a site that allows you to simply upload your, uh, your manuscript and it does the uh, it does the encoding onto chain for you. You can then sort of see in a, a little sub tab uh, all of the the uh, the beautiful encryption uh, trailing its its letters and numbers. Um, and so uh, it's it's verifiable and something that people cannot cancel or erase, which is nice right now. And when will the book be available? Well, that's that's the announcement that uh, the people who sign up are going to receive. It's coming soon, so, okay. so get on it. Soon. <laughs> to prepare for our conversation, I read an article of yours or an essay published in the spring of this year in the Claremont Review of Books. It's called God and Man at Google, Our Technologies, Ourselves. And uh, before we get into the content of that, would you say a little bit about uh, the Claremont Institute? Yeah, sure. So the Claremont Institute is uh, just a little over 40 years old, founded by students of uh, Harry Jaffa, the great American student of Leo Strauss uh, when he was here uh, in the U.S. And so the Claremont Institute is, uh, is dedicated to uh, really statesmanship, statecraft, uh, and political philosophy, the political philosophies that are needed to, uh, to approach uh, statecraft in, in a successful and fruitful way that is not damaging to uh, human life and human identity. And so uh, over the past 40 years, uh, we've been you know, dedicated to, uh, to doing that through uh, a couple of publications, one of which is the Claremont Review of Books that some people may be uh, familiar with. I'm uh, running The American Mind, which is uh, the sort of the new kid on the block. Uh, we don't do the book reviews. We do just, just about everything else. And uh, you know, of late, uh, I'm a political theorist by trade. I, uh, I have a PhD uh, from Georgetown in government, not to be confused with political science. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, by the time the, uh, the the Trump years got going, um, it occurred to me that uh, what was unfolding could really not be under, uh, understood in the absence of a real knowledge of what digital technology was, where it came from, where it's going, what it does to us, 
uh, and what we can do about it. You know, some of which is is not necessarily bad, and some of which is kind of scary. And uh, you know, there's there's a lot there. And so um, I, I you know kind of kind of give myself permission to have beginner's mind uh, set aside the uh, the political theory canon. Uh, read a lot of media theory, Marshall McLuhan and others. Um, and figured out how, how the two could be uh, put in conversation and put together. If political theory didn't have anything whatsoever to say about what digital technology was doing to us, it seemed to me that you know, this was just another academic discipline that deserved to die. Um, I guess I had you know, some residual loyalty. Uh, and so I, I wanted to see if, uh, if I could sort of rescue the, the discipline from irrelevance in at least that regard. Um, and this book is the product of that effort. Where do you and the Claremont Institute stand in terms of tribal allegiance uh, with the red tribe, blue tribe dichotomy, which has become so engraved, I guess is the word I'm looking for, in, in public consciousness? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, politics, especially in America, is, um, is, a, uh, is a, a collective activity that oftentimes requires people to choose sides. And sometimes your side is chosen for you based on, you know, who, who sees you as an adversary. Um, that's not something that, you know, we're inclined to shy away from. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, and I'm sure, you know, many, many listeners to this podcast, uh, and this is not to cast aspersions on anyone's age, are also old enough to remember a time when, you know, it was 100% the radical left that was opposed to concentrated corporate power, that was opposed to domestic surveillance, that was opposed to government with limitless powers. Uh, that was opposed to, um, you know, uh, uh, efforts by, um, you know, uh, 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 scientists to uh, manipulate our, um, our experiences and tinker with our memories and uh, twist our humanity into shapes that, you know, ordinary people weren't comfortable with. Um, and now, in a lot of respects, that seems to have flipped. Uh, how much that is the result of, you know, uh, high-level uh, sort of uh, uh, information war being conducted by, you know, various countries or factions. You know, that's something that I, I think about uh, for fairly often, uh, but it's happening. And so, you know, these, these political categories, left and right, uh, vestiges of, you know, French Revolution era politics, where some people sat on one side of the parliament, some people sat on the other, uh, they can be useful heuristics. A lot of people, you know, still kind of have reason to, to generally peg them in one place or the other. Uh, but the digital age is really profoundly different from what's come before. We've seen it in how it's, it's flipped and scrambled our political categories. I think that's going to continue. And so, you know, yeah, tribes, tribes exist. Uh, factions exist. I think the founders understood perfectly well that factions were always going to be with us, but that they were, in a certain sense, a, a, a central problem to our form of government. And so I think, you know, in order to, uh, to understand uh, the world we've been thrust into in a digital age, uh, of course, we got to recognize the reality of, of, of factions and how the factional alignment sets up. But we also have to realize that uh, in many ways, digital life is an acid bath for all of the institutions and, and patterns of life that came before it. Uh, and we shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves with strange bedfellows. Are you familiar with the book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Leonard Schlein? Yes, uh, the, the, the great polymath and uh, an eminent weirdo, Leonard Schlein, a psychiatrist uh, who... Uh, somehow found the time and the, the energy to write uh, a number of different books, uh, you know, notionally veering way outside his area of expertise. Uh, but yes, the, the alphabet versus the goddess is one of the most interesting, I think. For the benefit of the audience, I'll remind them, because I probably haven't mentioned this book on the podcast in years, but um, Leonard Slane's thesis is that when pre-literate cultures get literacy, and particularly when they get, you know, printing, there's an adjustment period where they go nuts. 
and they get really ideological and really intolerant of deviant thought. And to me, it seems the, the digital technologies and particularly um, social media technologies that are based on neurological research, which are really you know, just looking to keep us engaged with the, uh, the platform and have discovered algorithmically that one of the best ways to keep us engaged is to keep us really angry at one another. Uh, it's had a similar effect. And De Leonard Slane says that, you know, it's a temporary effect. The literacy effect is temporary and that eventually societies figure out how to live with print. And, I, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll follow a similar trajectory with digital technology. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I, yeah, you know, I, I share that hope. I think there's, there's always reason for hope and uh, that that's true even when uh, the, the main task is just to figure out what the hell already happened to us before we can even start uh, looking forward. So uh, there's, there's a guy, a media theorist by the name of Walter Ong. He was a student of Marshall McLuhan. Uh, and Walter Ong's sort of big contribution to media theory was this idea of secondary orality. So he said, you know, you go back to uh, the pre- pre-print days, pre-alphabet, you got oral culture, you know, Homer, the epic poetry, that sort of thing. Uh, and as uh, technology, uh, communications technology advanced, as media continued to develop past, uh, past print, past, past the alphabet, uh, of course, you started to get into things like, uh, like radio, um, and you started to have a kind of return of the oral as a dom dominant mode of communication, a dominant medium uh, that, that independently you know, shapes, as all media do, shape our sensibilities, shape our perceptions, our experiences, our inner and outer lives. Uh, and so you know, he described uh, the advent of radio which is in a sense, you know, still very much with us as we sit here on a podcast with fancy looking microphones in front of our faces. <laughs> uh, he described that as a sort of secondary orality. Uh, so, you know, what I think we're seeing right now with digital uh, could be described as a kind of secondary literacy where the new kids on the block uh, as participants in uh, the, the uh, media process and experience and the surround of literacy are now machines, uh, algorithms, programs, hardware, software, digital entities, uh, until fairly recently, uh, the kinds of things that these entities can do uh, were really only associated with angels and demons, uh, invisible, uh, ubiquitous, capable of being everywhere and nowhere at the same time, uh, flying through the air, uh, having powers, sort of superhuman powers that, that we don't, often don't understand or should feel suspicious of. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that the best way to understand these devices is as literal demons, uh, but I would say you know, that the, the wrenching change for, for all of its uncanniness uh, we should keep in mind that, you know, now, now it's, the, uh, it's the computers, it's the machines who are kind of the masters of, uh, of reading, of writing, of recordation, uh, and of recall. Uh, and in the face of this uh, incredible power, you know, there's some folks out there, these kind of like ex-Googlers who are on this like, like black pill uh, apology tour, like, oh, humans suck. And, you know, we're building gods out of these machines. And it's like, we're not building, you can't build a god. You can't be a god. Humans don't suck. Uh, we need to remember that, that we are who we are and that who we are is good and different from these machines. The brain is not just a computer. The mind is not just a brain. And, uh, and the way that we remember and the way that we pass on our memories is unique and different from the way that machines do and is, it nurtures and protects our humanity in a way that they just can't. And that's fine. They're, they're just machines after all. And we shouldn't put that burden on them. Uh, and we shouldn't try to replace uh, or denigrate our, our mode of memory and our passing on of our human identity by looking up to these machines as some sort of divinities. Well, I liked all of that, but I want to give a special highlight and thumbs up, you know, like button to humans do not suck.
Amen to that. I, I'm very um, fed up, really, with the you know misanthropic wing of the um, you know environmentalist mindset, and particularly antinatalists who say there's too many humans, that life is terrible, it's evil to bring new humans into the world. I, I just I have zero patience for that. Uh, and you know, after a lifetime of being you know, reflexively anti-authoritarian, which means it's very natural for me to you know, be highly critical of the U U.S. In recent years, I've come to be very impatient with reflexive anti-Americanism as well, which seems to be, you know, a, a necessary sort of signal that you, you flash at people just to demonstrate your own sophistication. You know, if you're smart, if you've been to college, if you have a big vocabulary, of course, you hate the United States, which I think is ludicrous. And I'll, I'll stop ranting there because I could do that for a while. <laughs> well, you know, the uh, I think one reason why it was so, so easy or fashionable to hate on the U.S. is that the U.S. was um, was really the the lone superpower. Uh, it kind of epitomized everything. The United States, you know, sort of seemed to reflect the totality of human consciousness and experience back on the world. Um, and that made it, you know, something that was always kind of blocking your vision or something you, th you had to kind of try to peer through in order to, to get sight of any significant phenomenon. And that was, you know, that was a product of the electric age that America did very well under the electric age, Europe, not so well. <laughs> uh, you know, you get streetlights going on in Paris and it seemed very exciting. You know, you could now have cafe culture at night. Uh, and it was just, you know, a, a blip in historical time before Europe was rubble. Mm. And, uh, and that is not what happened to America during the electric age. Uh, America, you know, processed the occultism of the electric age in a much different way that, than Europe did. It processed the, you know, the, the disincarnate power of, of electricity uh, in a different way than Europe did. And, you know, it all culminated, of course, in the United States being the place where uh, Europe's most brilliant scientists uh, went to build the atomic bomb, among other things. And so America's uh, experience with the electric age, which I would argue started with Abraham Lincoln. You know, Lincoln was the guy who, uh, who hung out in the, uh, the telegraph room of the War Department during the Civil War to communicate directly with his generals. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation went out by telegraph. That's why it, it, it spread so quickly and it was, was uh, experienced as this kind of you know, divine uh, injunction into American life. Uh, Lincoln did a good job of understanding that electric technology uh, had a, a, a unique force and character and that America, in a certain sense, needed to be put on a footing that was going to allow it to flourish in the electric age to process the magnitude of this transformation. Uh, you know, his wife, um, unfortunately, showed sort of the, the sadder or darker side of the electric age when she became convinced that, uh, that mediums could be uh, invited into the White House to give a seance and she could, uh, she could reconnect with her recently deceased, tragically deceased son uh, who died while Lincoln was in office. So uh, Mary Todd, you know, swindled by, by the mediums and mountebanks of the electric age as, as so many were over the decades. Um, here comes the digital age. Things have not gone so good for, the Amer for America in the digital age, despite the fact that we created these technologies, we disseminated these technologies, we made them look and feel cool, uh, we onboarded all of us into these technologies, uh, and there was a real expectation uh, cultivated uh, among the people, but really generated from the very, very top elite figures in American life, that these inventions were going to save the world and were going to sort of complete or perfect America's leading role in governing the world 
structuring socioeconomic life around the world, bringing everyone together. Uh, it was really a sort of spirit of triumphalism and and completism, and you know the uh, the all of these sensibilities among mathematicians and scientists that you know oh we can formalize everything, we can make programming totally deterministic, you know we can solve for politics, we can fix humanity, all of those kinds of sensibilities bundled up into the way that digital technologies were uh, disseminated and you know skinned as sort of consumer devices. Uh, and so, of course, Americans were, you know, we created these things. Our, our leaders are telling them they're great. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, you know, and for some people, what, what went wrong was that Trump was elected. Um, but I think, you know, you don't have to be a sort of partisan in one direction or the other to look back over the past 20 years and go like, gosh, you know, it seems like this system is better at kind of enforcing a kind of uh, uh, passive uniformity on us than it is you know, spreading uh, benefits of our leadership around the world. Uh, so we've got, you know, it's, it's very disenchanting, very demoralizing to see these things happen. It's, it's hard for people to know exactly who to blame and how to sort of un, unsnafu this, this situation. Uh, I think there are ways that it can be done. Um, I think we, it, it starts with uh, recognizing that our humanity is a gift, warts and all, that you know, we are unlike our machines. Uh, we don't need to feel envious of them. We don't need to imitate them in the hopes of transcending you know, everything that sucks about being human. Warts and all, you know, we are incarnate and souled creatures uh, who, are, who are worthy of our own existence. And the alternatives, you know, we're not going to become gods. We're not actually literally going to become bugs, although, you know, that that's a fear that, that people have for, for, you know, I think it's understandable that they don't want to be uh, herded into this kind of cyborg vivarium that the social credit system is constructing for us. At the end of the day, we're humans. We're stuck being humans. Uh, that's, that's good news considering the alternatives. And uh, ordinary people should be and need to be uh, put back in charge of our most powerful technologies to ensure that they tell the computers, these, these devices, what to do and what they should be doing are things that, you know, sort of providing the backbone for us to create and share in the culture that makes human life sacred and fruitful and profitable uh, and memorable. You're listening to the Sea Realm podcast with your host, KMO. You know, I mentioned that I didn't expect that we'd get through all of the, the books in your essay, but we haven't mentioned even one yet. So I'm just going to read a list of all of them. And uh, what I'll ask you to do in answer to the question is, what questions were you looking to answer uh, as you, you know, when you were going through these books? Or what, what similar questions are the authors of these books asking? Or what's the similarity between them? What's, what's the thematic connection? So the books are Facebook, An Inside Story by Stephen Levy. Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of the Blockchain Economy by George Gilder, somebody I used to follow in the 90s and hadn't even thought of in years, I have to say. Technology in America by Parag Khanna, who I hadn't heard of, but I, he's got a many, 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 many hours worth of talks that you can take in on YouTube, I've discovered. Uh, Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry, of all the ones that you, you covered, that's the one that I'm most interested in reading, you know, based on your coverage of it. Then there's The Autonomous Revolution. This is by William Davidson or Davidson and Michael Malone. And the subtitle of that one is Reclaiming the Future We've Sold to the Machines. And finally, the only book on the list which I've actually read, uh, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee. And you know, when I first 
saw the title uh, AI superpowers, I thought of superpowers, you know, like flying, x-ray vision, hyper healing, but he's talking about superpowers as in the US Soviet Union superpowers and describing a new arms race between, you know, these between China and not so much the US government or the Defense Department or the Pentagon, but between um, against a sort of loosely affiliated team of corporations here in the United States. But let me turn it back over to you. Of all of these books, what, what are the central questions that they're dealing with and um, how do they cluster in terms of their, their responses to the challenges that we're facing? Uh, sure. I mean, let's just hit them one by one and do a little lightning round here. So the, so the first one was on Facebook. You know, this is a big doorstop book, heavily researched, all kinds of access and everything. Uh, a, a critical look at Facebook, uh, especially with regard to sort of Trump stuff. You know, the Cambridge Analytica is presented as this kind of boogeyman, uh, even though, you know, if you talk to, to people who actually understand these things, I mean, the, the MIT Tech Review uh, on the eve of Barack Obama's reelection, you know, put out their, their big uh, issue with Bono's face filling the entire cover and, you know, big legend underneath saying how big data will save politics. And so the Obama team was doing stuff that's very similar to what Cambridge Analytica was doing. When one side was doing it, a lot of people, yay, this is good. This is the future. And then when, you know, when the, oh, Trump came along and then they, they were doing it too. And suddenly it became, you know, this massive threat to our democracy. I mean, I think that's just a ridiculous assessment, regardless of where you stand uh, uh, politically or ideologically. So there's a lot of that running through the, the Facebook book. But I, I mean, I think the most interesting thing to me about the Facebook book is uh, it helped reveal that, you know, social media as we understand it today is really kind of a hybrid of electric technology and digital technology. And I think it's an unstable hybrid. And I think, you know, what we're seeing unfold right now with Facebook, where they've gotten to the point of saying like, oh, we're, we're not a social media company. We're not Facebook. We're a metaverse company. And, you know, stay tuned for our new name. Like this reveals yeah, to me they, they that- They are releasing a new name this week. Yeah. Um, and- you know, Facebook itself, they wisely bought up WhatsApp and Instagram. And those two companies are much more popular with young people than, uh, you know, their social media platform, what they call the blue app. So yeah, they really need a rebranding desperately. And they've been trying to become um, a source of digital money as well and really falling behind in that race. But I've, I've cut you off. So let me, can, let me right. invite so you to continue. You know, they've, they've tried all kinds of things and, uh, and, and everything that they've had to try has been on the basis that Facebook should be as lar at least as large as it is mm -hmm. in terms of users. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think that the verdict on Facebook as of right now is that uh, social media at that scale is is simply an unstable business model because it is an attempt to make durable a a structure of digital technology that is really a hybrid between two worlds and and can't really sustain itself. So what I'm worried about is you know it, Facebook um, has has been treated unfairly in the press in certain ways and not others. Uh, what we don't want is we don't want Facebook to be kind of seized by the state in a way that uses it to become a kind of, you know, fed book instead of Facebook, uh, just a kind of way for for the state uh, to encompass everyone all the more so in a social credit system. And I think that's what a lot of critics of Facebook actually want at the end of the day. Uh, they, they don't you know, Facebook has too much independence and they shouldn't be making these decisions. And Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who the hell is he? Uh, it should be the government instead. And in fact, you know, Eric Schmidt, he has already filed the report to the federal government as chair of this sort of commission on basically automating government. Uh, there are, you know, powerful folks out there who look at Facebook and they say, this sucks, it should be replaced by a government social credit system. And so that's, you know, that's the word on Facebook. Uh, the, next, the next one on the list, uh, remind me, is which? Well, 
let me let's stay on Facebook for just a second. <clears throat> sure. You know, the, the entity, not so much uh, James Levy's book, uh, although I will say in your reporting about the book, um, you touch on something which is is a sore spot for me that the the contemporary left, very unlike the left of my youth, uh, they seem to be really enthusiastic about censorship and about coercion of people who hold views different from theirs. And you know the complaints that we get from the left about Facebook is they're not doing enough to curb hate speech. And I think your your summation of you know the your the summation of your criticism of this book was that Levy is participating in this mentality which says. Really, the problem with Facebook is that it allows people on the political right to communicate with one another and organize collectively. Uh, so that that's a bother to me. But I just wanted to remind everybody of when Mark Zuckerberg was hauled in front of Congress to account for the actions of Facebook. And, you know, you can be assured that he was prepared by a team uh, drilling him in various questions that he might have to answer. And he gets up there and the first question put to him, I think was put by Orrin Hatch, who said, Mr. Zuckerberg, how does your company make money? And you can see Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he's, he's intense, you know, he's in the zone, he's waiting for whatever's coming at him. And when this is the first question that comes at him, a sly smile creeps across his face and you can see him trying to suppress it, but he's like, oh, 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 oh yay, you know, I'm fighting a toddler. Uh, and you can see that his team behind him, they're all, you know, they've got that same grin creeping across their face and they're trying to suppress it. It's like, these people know nothing. These people know nothing about what we do. Oh, this is going to be a cakewalk. Okay, the next book, Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of the Blockchain Economy by George Gilder. Right, so uh, Gilder's point there is, uh, is that Google's vision of itself is really uh, as a... a um, a scientific enterprise to achieve complete knowledge of what there is to know on earth, really to sort of create a map that is better than the territory that, ha that is more information rich than the territory itself, a sort of closed universe model. And I think that, that that's right, that, uh, that mathematics and science and engineering and technology are currently dominated by people who think that uh, mathematical formalism can achieve a level of determinacy such that uh, we can, with complete confidence, predict and know that input X is going to result in output Y. And so the hope of these people is to write programs that are so airtight or, or complete in this way that they can really uh, give orders to swarms of digital entities to manage or control other digital swarms. And that's their kind of model of governance. Um, and you know, I think that that's bad. Uh, Gilder thinks that that's bad. Gilder's answer is, really relies heavily on human creativity. He says, look, you know, human creativity means that, that at the end of the day, like anything's possible and the universe is open. And if we forget this, then we are going to lock ourselves into a a sort of glide path of forever diminishing horizons and the, the kind of scope of human knowledge is actually going to kind of fold up on itself. Uh, something similar to what Alexis de Tocqueville says at the end of Democracy in America, where he fears that uh, democratic life has this kind of tendency or this drift that causes people to kind of fold up on the, the interior of their lives and become, you know, egoists, but in a very, a very small way. 
and uh, in a way that 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 encourages people to accept this kind of smothering soft despotism where the government just takes care of sort of this clockwork country and you know people sit at home sort of brooding in the uh, the inner reaches of their own heart and we've seen you know we've seen a lot of that happen on on social media and we've seen a lot of you know millennials kind of ex- experiencing this and issuing various cries for help uh, most of which I think at this point manifest in sort of the use of sexuality uh, to try to escape their human identity and in some way become cyborgs, which many people feel that they have to do in order to survive in the digital age. I mean, yes, we all carry around these smartphones in our hands every day. And so to that extent, we are, we're all kind of cyborgs now, uh, but going full cyborg is not something that I would recommend. Uh, I think it will only end in tears. Uh, and so focusing the way that Gilder does only on human creativity, I think runs the risk of of convincing us wrongly that uh, that fantasy can save us still. Uh, this was a big idea before digital came along when uh, electricity ruled and TV was the most powerful form of electric uh, technology, the, the most powerful medium. What happened on screen was more important than what happened off. You, John Lennon was telling us to, uh, you know, to, to imagine our way to to heaven on earth, uh, you know, above us only sky, that means no heaven, but also no space. Like we're just, we're here. And, and it's kind of the, the world economic forum, you know, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And that, you know, John Lennon and, and that strain of thought is, is still, still trying to get traction. Uh, Willy Wonka is singing pure imagination. Um, you know, that was a vision of, of paradise on earth, post-religious vision of paradise on earth uh, that I think has, is, is obsolete now in the digital age. A lot of those people who are still pushing it are trying to kind of reboot themselves as digital era priests. Uh, you know, the, the swing that you've seen on the left from like, that's, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion uh, to something more like, you know, if you do not embrace the official sort of religious view on these issues, then you are a bad person who needs to be silenced. That kind of swing has tracked this shift from, from uh, the televisual age to the digital age. And it's, these, these things are still going to play out. Um, and and if, we, if we want to gain the upper hand over our machines and over people who want to use them to rule us, uh, we need to, uh, yeah, human creativity is good, but uh, human memory is what really needs to be protected. It's what's really being undermined and attacked right now. People, for obvious reasons, look at the machine memory and they go, oh, I wish my memory was that good. Maybe I should try to become a cyborg and, you know, get rid of my pathetic humanity. That's not going to save us. Uh, what we need is we need uh, ways of getting computers, machines, uh, to protect our memory uh, and to serve as sort of the backbone or the servant of forms of life where we create culture, uh, we share culture, we value culture, exchange it in ways that are protective of our, our memory of our human identity, uh, in ways that you know, allow us to be fruitful with one another um, and to you know, keep the enterprise of human culture going. So... I'd like to push on to the next book, but one of the notes that I wrote down from your your coverage of uh, George Gilder's book is the notion of the materialist superstition, which is the belief that life can be modeled perfectly by that which is not alive. And I think you've you've covered that in passing, but I'd like to have you address it specifically. Yeah. So uh, you know, these are <laughs> these are people who uh, basically think that God does not exist and human beings don't have souls. And that, you know, you are your body and your body is your brain and your brain is your mind and your mind is a computer. Uh, and that's just, you know, I think that's just factually inaccurate. Um, and I think that uh, this position that they hold is one that uh, leads them to falsely conclude that, uh, 
that formalized mathematics is, you know, is, is basically divine, that it has superhuman powers, that it can uh, equip us with uh, completely deterministic forms of programming, uh, and that we can, you know, we can create a kind of clockwork universe that our consciousness merges with and, and controls. And in this way, we will transcend our, our pathetic or disgusting humanity and uh, reach a high, higher level of consciousness uh, that in some sense is truer or more complete uh, than our own given humanity. Um, that, you know, <laughs> we look around, why, why is everyone so upset today? Why is mental illness so prominent? Why are obesity levels out of control? You know, why is suicide going up? Why, you know, do so many, uh, so many girls, uh, not want to hit puberty? Uh, why do so many 65 know, year old men in positions of power want to become women? Like what is happening? Uh, and that's what's happening. Our, you know, our, our surround is being sculpted and shaped uh, and used to, to kind of terraform us inside and out by people who think that, that the only thing left for us to do, the only thing worth doing, is to uh, transcend and abandon our humanity by merging our consciousness with a kind of perfect technology. Next on the list, Technocracy in America by Parag Khanna. Right. So, you know, Kana is one of these well-meaning technocrats who, uh, who likes to sit down with kind of the data and do a social science thing about it. And he says, look, you know, uh, maybe America's form of government served it pretty well in the past. Maybe not. I'm not here to litigate that. All I'm here to say is like, perhaps if we put more technologists in charge of more sort of functions of governance, we could achieve more reliable, more efficient and more productive results. Seems, you know, pretty harmless. And there are edge cases where it's like, well, yes, you know, government sucks so much at some of these basic things that perhaps putting someone in charge who is not, you know, 80 years old and needs 80 point font to read in the, the Congress, you know, maybe that, that would help. I mean, I'm not here to, you know, ridicule, ridicule Orrin Hatch or anything, but uh, I have seen the binder with the, you know, with Orrin's speech in 80 point font marching down the page because that was the, the size that it needed to be in order for him to read the thing on the floor of the Congress. And so, yes, you know, there, there are obviously ways that, uh, that more technologically inclined people could get more satisfying results in certain areas of government. Some people like to wave around Singapore as an example of what we should all do. Uh, but, you know, those, those champions of Singapore don't like to point out that Singapore is also basically our Department of Defense's sandbox. Every military technology that they are not able to use in the U.S., or at least until recently, they just fly over to Singapore and try it out there and see how it goes. Uh, and that's a relationship that's, you know, worked great for Singapore and worked great for the DOD. But I don't think Americans want to live under Singapore's form of government. Uh, and so these, you know, these, these technological questions, you know, when, when you're down at the level of, of sort of measuring incremental results, a more tech technocratic approach can look pretty attractive. Uh, when you scale that thing up, though, you know, you are not living in America anymore. Uh, and I think, you know, in spite of all of our frustrations, all of our disenchantment, at the end of the day, most Americans would still very much like to live in America. With Singapore in particular, I mean, I've never been around the city state, but I've had long layovers in the Singapore airport. And here is in a nutshell is, you know, the Singapore airport experience. Um, you get off the plane, you walk up, you know, into the, the airport concourse area, and there's a sign that says, you know, death penalty for drug smugglers. And then you walk out into the concourse and it's gorgeous it is like this the most luxurious hotel crossed with a park and a theme park and it's it's beautiful and orderly and luxurious and there are teenagers with assault rifles you know patrolling 
the aisles, um, you know, they look like teenagers because they're Asian, but you know, they're probably in their early twenties. It's a very, very authoritarian place, but it's also quite prosperous and orderly. And, you know, it's, it's very, um, very much in the mold, you know, the Asian mold of the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. As long as you're down with the program, it's great. If you, if you want to think for yourself or if you want to examine the proclamations of authority, you know, God bless you, but uh, don't do it in Singapore. Next book. Well, actually, let's stay with technocracy for a second. You know, the, the notion of technocracy, if, if you're describing it by people who are in favor of it, is that decisions should be made by people who know stuff. Smart people who understand technological systems should be the ones making rules that govern the operation of a technological society. But technocracy's failure mode is that it tends to worship credentials. You know, so credentialism is the way that it breaks bad. And so, you know, we have in, in our current technocracy, you know, to the extent that our civilization and our society is a technocracy, uh, you have to come from one of the elite schools. And it's very, you know, if, if, State schools, if, if supposedly, you know, the technical knowledge that you get at a state school is not comparable to what you'd get at uh, Stanford and, you know, the, you know, the big corporations that control everything are just going to recruit from Stanford or MIT, it's very easy to capture those small locations ideologically. And that's what we've seen, you know, and it's largely the source of, of wokeism. You know, uh, the woke ideology started in these elite universities and then colonized the HR departments of Google and Amazon, you know, and Facebook and all the big companies. And these big companies reach out into every single person's life who carries around a cell phone. And it is these big companies, you know, who are the arbiters of what is dangerous, what is hate speech and what is just obvious truth. And um, <laughs> I, I won't go into my personal history with it. I'll just say. I don't have a Facebook account. I did for years. I got kicked off. Well, and you know, and and let's add that these these big companies are big because uh, they arose from uh, from federal policy by and large. Uh, they they um, marketed uh, military and intelligence technology that was repurposed and commodified as consumer entertainment. Uh, and today, and increasingly so. Uh, they do the bidding of the government, often uh, by choice and sometimes uh, not so much by choice. Uh, and that seems like a trend that is going to continue and intensify uh, over time. Next book, number four, Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority by Martin. And I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Is it Guri? Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's the skinny on that one? Uh, Gurry is a very, very intelligent man, very perceptive, uh, former intelligence analyst, um, Stripe Press put out this, I mean, their, their graphic design department is very strong. And so they have many, <laughs> many beautiful texts, many thick and beautiful texts. And this is one of them. Uh, and a lot of what Gurry has to say about the crisis of authority among the elite and the rise of populism is, is spot on. And the connection of those two things to technological advancement. Um, Guri's blind spot, curiously, is uh, he is um, he is keen to demonstrate that much of what passes for populism or much of what is given populist vent is really a kind of nihilism, um, and he implies that a lot of that nihilism has to do with the fact that uh, ordinary people 
don't understand and kind of can't understand what it is that technology is doing to our world. And so they just want to kind of lash, you know, lash out at whoever seems to be in charge. And so his diagnosis of the Trump phenomenon is this is nihilism in action. People wanted a bull in a china shop. They just wanted Hulk smash. And that's why they voted for Trump. Um, you know, there's, <laughs> I'm not going to argue that that, that is <laughs> false for every person uh, in America who voted for Donald Trump. And in truth, you know, when everything seems to be going wrong, perhaps smashing everything seems like a non-crazy idea relative to if most things are going right. But I think more importantly, you know, the, ordinary people do understand what technology is doing to our world. They understand it very well, and they understand what it's doing to them. It's, uh, they understand what it's doing to their families. They understand what it's doing to their country, and they understand who is winning as a result of the manner in which technology is being controlled and wielded over them in their lives. So I do not think that this is fundamentally a problem of nihilism. I do not think that the Trump phenomenon can be explained adequately as a, a kind of a spasm of nihilistic sentiment among you know, lower classes of Americans. Um, I think that people are, you know, are, are increasingly desperate for someone at the leadership level to evince the authority of personal integrity, of uh, you know, a certain level of intelligence, of the awareness of the problem of who is in charge of technology in America, uh, and some you know, uh, uh, record, um, even a, a short record is fine if it's a good enough record, of competence at kind of turning, turning the tide here. I mean, why is it that Ron DeSantis is having such a good you know, year as a politician? Um, I think that it has to do with these issues. Um, I think that in many ways, he evinces the kind of, of substance that uh, people hoped uh, Trump would develop on the job and kind of kind of didn't uh, to a lot of people's satisfaction. And so I think, you know, Gurry's thesis uh, might seem plausible in some respects, depending on, you know, who, what, what angle you're looking at Trump and, and who you are looking at him, uh, but that it doesn't quite hold as well uh, in, in going forward. And, you know, that, that the, the case of DeSantis is an example of why. Next in our list, the autonomous revolution by William Davidson and Michael Malone. Yeah, so these guys, you know, not household names, uh, not uh, trendy academics. You know, this is not Yuval Harari here. This is, uh, these are some pretty Those nerdy books guys. books I really enjoy, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps they are dangerously entertaining. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I think that it's very important that the title of the book is, it has to do with autonomy. Um, the way that uh, the, the Build Back Better elite is, is uh, marketing or pushing their, their agenda in the U.S. and, of course, many other places is as the fourth industrial revolution. And although it is indeed a revolution from above, um, industrial is kind of a, a sneaky way of putting things. What they want to do is they want to, uh, they want to automate our social and economic life. Um, and viewing things as an autonomous re uh, revolution reflects this, uh, reflects the truth back, back at you. Um, in this book, uh, the, the, really where the rubber hits the road for me in this book is where they say, uh, look, this is not something that's going to be undone. It is not undoable. Digital technology is not going to go away. You can't just like blow up the factories, throw the, the wooden clog into the gears and go back to you know, some idyllic state. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, and so ultimately what we need to do is we need to focus on human responsibility and we need to focus on you know, which, uh, which values, what value systems are going to give human beings the agency 
and the self-respect and the humility and the um, authority to regain and wield control over these immensely powerful machines. So a theme in all of your summations of these books is here the author has very correctly identified a, a challenge and they fail to see some, you know, some important aspect of it. Is there a case of that here? Uh, well, I think that these authors are being very circumspect because they want to reach an audience of kind of, of elder nerds who are, are very serious about their work and serious about, uh, about the, the uh, scientific enterprise and how it is applied to public life. And so it's, you know, it's very thoughtfully and carefully written with a very level head. Um, it doesn't go outside the four corners of you know, the, the argument in the box. Um, and so I think it raises the right questions and it points generally in the right direction. Uh, but there's, you know, a big field out there where we need to, uh, we need to color in the, uh, the different shapes in the coloring book. And, uh, you know, that, that's good news for me anyway. <laughs> so we're almost at the end of the list of books, but I think this is a safe place to ask you to comment on the role that Andrew Yang played in the 2020 presidential primary contest. Sure. Well, you know, I think there were, it's kind of a tale of two signs that I am going to tell here. Uh, the first sign was infamously the one held up at the, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, chairman hearing uh, in Congress. I think it was still uh, a chairman, Federal Reserve chairman at that point. A guy holding up a sign that said, uh, buy Bitcoin. Um, and that made it onto television and uh, that made a stir. Uh, this is a point in time when if you bought Bitcoin on that very day, you would now be doing pretty well, at least on, on paper. <laughs> yes. And then there was another sign, uh, a sign that, that became popular at, uh, at Yang rallies, and it simply says math. Yep. <laughs> As if you, you know, math, that's Make what America we need. America think harder. Yes. Not a chicken in every pot, but math in every pot. Um, and these are two different, although related models of how to get out of the mess that we are in. The, uh, the Bitcoin model is, you know, as I suggested, there are a couple different flavors here. One is, is just stack sats, hold your Bitcoin, number go up, and we live happily ever after. <laughs> and, you know, there is a certain sort of puckish delight that you can take in watching that happen. Uh, but it does sort of raise some questions about how civil society and how a culture that technologically protects and reinforces the sacredness of human life is going to, uh, you know, who's going to be doing that job if the smartest people are just sitting around hoarding Bitcoin, waiting for, you know, the big switchover to happen. I mean, the big switchover- Not just hoarding it, but engineering market cycles with big crashes so they can accumulate more and, you know, take money out of the pockets of the uh, so-called retail investors who FOMO'd in at the top and, and then got scared when the, the price plummeted by 80%, which it does, you know. There are various. I, I don't want to. I don't want to divert us into the weeds on. on yeah, sure. I, and I, you know, I'm not going to do that either. Uh, it is kind of the wild west. Some ways that's good. Some ways it's not so good. Uh, but there, you know, there are ways that you can use Bitcoin to. I mean, this is why I'm publishing my book on, you know, on chain and for sale in 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 Bitcoin, uh, is to demonstrate that this is not just something that you can sort of pile up in digital space. And you know, wait for uh, wait for for heaven on earth to arrive. Uh, this is something that you can use right now to uh, to to create markets, fair and transparent markets. You know, you're not just trying to scam people on anything. 
it's it's not about how many fed bucks you can get for however many coins you've stacked up it's about putting that technology to work to tell computers what to do to use them to buy and sell and exchange and create culture that is protective of, of human life and reminds us of who we really are. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the, the, the meaning behind the Bitcoin sign. The meaning behind the math sign is that no, no, uh, math is actually perfect and pure. Um, it is, it is, <laughs> you, you can trust the math, you know, and that, that, that obscures the question of like, well, can you, can you trust the mathematicians? And then there's a question behind that, which is, well, can you trust people who are not mathematicians who are out there like throwing math around? You know, maybe I can trust the math, but can I trust you holding the math sign? All questions that are not answered by the math sign. Uh, but I think the math sign gives view or, or uh, reveals that uh, a growing number of people out there are sort of looking at mathematicians and going, you tell us that formalistic math can can create such deterministic programming that we know that that we can always know that input x will result in output y and through this you know incredible superhuman power of determinacy we can order the universe and you know we can make everything work we can solve for humanity we can fix politics we can live happily ever after um I think take one look at quantum physics and you will discover that the universe is not grounded in some ultimate sense on on rational syllogisms and on, you know, X, X and then an arrow to Y. That's not really the way that it works. The uh, the essence of reality is something that is mysterious and implicit and will always remain. So this is why I am a you know, I am a theist. It is why I believe in the existence of the soul. It is why I think these things are part and parcel of who we are as human beings. Do you have to believe these things in order to uh, to protect and sustain our humanity? Probably, you know, probably no. There are probably few people. I mean, you know, there are philosophers of the ages who, oh, no, being human is good in spite of it all. Uh, but it's a much more difficult argument, very complex, harder to convince people. And, you know, I, I just don't think that it scales as we're seeing today. One note that I wrote down under your coverage of the autonomous revolution. Main challenge is preventing the capture of prosperity by a ruling class as machines displace humans in the economy. And it was that note that, you know, that directed me to ask you about Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang was talking about you know, his, his primary pitch in the presidential election was universal basic income. And when I, you know, I talked to a fair number of people about that. And what I, when I talked to the Red Tribe about th this notion of UBI, they're either, yeah, sounds good. Or, uh, you know, they didn't say it like this, but I, you know, the subtext of what they said was, yeah, that kind of offends my sense of, uh, you know, the value that I place on a work ethic. I think people should work, but they weren't nasty about it. And the objections that I got from, you know, leftists was, Andrew Yang is evil. Andrew Yang is the devil. And you know, just the vitriol and the hatred directed at Yang and you know, the so-called Yang gang from the left is just bewildering to me. And I wonder what you make of that. So, you know, the, the left has the upper hand in the uh, in the battle among the ruling factions right now. Uh, but there, you know, there are some fissures on the left. Some some folks on the left ultimately believe that math and the science are the only things that will, you know, save us and save us by uh, leading the way out of our, our flawed and disgusting humanity. Um, on the other hand, there are some folks on the left who think, no, 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 no. The only way that we can really have social justice is by making sure that our social credit system is nice and woke, that we have the right ethics in charge and the right ethicists to tell these computers what to do. 
Um, so, you know, they're responding in a, in a coherent fashion to the challenge of our transformation into cyborgs. Um, their answer is to say, well, as long as they're woke cyborgs, then we'll be fine. So, you know, this is, this is how, uh, you know, quote unquote trans has made it, you know, so quickly to the very top of the stack in terms of uh, justice prestige identities. Um, this should cause people to pause and have a think about what is going on, because of course, you know, you cannot magically uh, transubstantiate yourself from a man to a woman or a woman to a man simply by saying, I am and have always been, you know, whichever biological sex you are not until the minute that you make this utterance. Uh, similarly, uh, you cannot magically transform from a man to a woman or vice versa by having a technological intervention into your genitalia or even a technological intervention into your sort of hormone cocktail. Uh, something else is happening. Uh, and what it is that is happening is you are taking kind of the first major step, the first radical step into transitioning from a human being into a transhuman cyborg. And, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, Andrew Yang doesn't seem to have an answer to the question of like, how do we stop ourselves from being transformed into cyborgs? Um, but for the Wokies, you know, their answer is like, well, it's okay. Any kind of tr technological transformation of our humanity is okay as long as the woke ethicists who are the czars of our new governance regime say that it's okay. So we have two, a sort of conflict between two different sources of ultimate authority that are both kind of like fighting over control of the same like cyborg future. I, I will certainly admit, I mean, I, I liked Andrew Yang. Uh, I liked him a lot less when he ran for mayor of New York. But, you know, even though I wasn't really in a position to support political candidates, I did send money to his campaign a couple of times with no expectation whatsoever that he would win the nomination, much less, you know, the presidency. But I was just happy to see somebody talking about the reality of, you know, the digital transformation of the economy and the, the landscape of jobs. Nobody else, nobody else up on that stage packed with, you know, hopeful Democrats had anything intelligible to say about that. So, you know, that, that was the basis of my support for Andrew Yang. So now we are up to number six, uh, as I mentioned, the one book in your list that I've actually read, and that is AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee. Yes. Uh, so Kai-Fu Lee, uh, ex-head of, uh, of Google in China, uh, a position that has since been eliminated um, Kai-Fu Lee has a new book out. Uh, he's, he's moving fast. Uh, you know, obviously someone is, is really in favor of a more Kai-Fu Lee in this world. So, uh, so his new book is kind of like 12 visions of how life under AI might look. I haven't read the book. Um, the reason why I haven't read the book, uh, has to do with what I found in AI superpowers when I read it, which, you know, starts out as kind of like, U.S. and China are kind of the two big AI players. There are others, but they're not as important because ultimately like the conflict between AI American style and AI China style is what's going to sort of swallow up or, or force everything to march to dance to its tune. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's plausible enough. And I entertained that argument and I got to the end of the book and Kai-Fu Lee says, so, you know, in conclusion, uh, there's no stopping the destruction of basically good jobs by AI. And we're going to have to totally overhaul our civilization, uh, around the world, you know, sort of whoever you are, uh, AI is, is basically going to globalize us. 
Um, and so what can human beings do in such a world? Well, they can come up with new ways to care for each other. So jobs that you can look forward to are like, you know, being a greeter at like a virtual store or like, a, uh, a seasonal closet wardrobe changer, someone who kind of goes into people's closets and like, you know, adds like seasonal sense to them and helps them like change their vibe as the seasons change. And I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, this is not a compelling vision of the future. Maybe it's a compelling vision of the future for like the average quasi middle class Chinese person. Uh, it's not for the average American. It's not even for the extraordinary American. And this vision of the future is one of just not just radically reduced horizons, but one in which people are expected to contend themselves with this incredibly sentimentalized reduction of our affairs and our identity to that of sort of pets, you know, of like, of like characters in Animal Crossing. I mean, Animal Crossing is already there and it's already being marketed right now on the Nintendo Switch as like escape to a simpler place where you know your genderless animal friends will cook with you and plant flowers with you and you know i complained about this on twitter and you know i, I got blowback no animal crossing was it, it is essential to preserving my sanity during covid and i'm like which may well be true well which may well be true and which underscores the point which is perhaps you should give some thinking to what kind of regime is terraforming you and your fellow human beings such that you find Animal Crossing to be essential to stopping yourself from having a psychotic break because <laughs> of the pandemic. Perhaps that requires some reflection. So now we've gotten through all the books and you, I think, have already tipped your hand in terms of your prescription, uh, but I'll ask you to spell it out just the same. But before we get there, just a phrase I've written down in my notes here, Gnostic woke movement what does gnosticism and uh the the ethics and the um, i guess the metaphysics of wokeism what do they have in common so you know gnosticism has been around for a long time in in various different guises uh it comes from the greek word for knowledge and it's basically the religious idea that the key to your salvation is to be found in the acquisition of uh secret knowledge and then the sharing of that secret knowledge with you know, more, a more or less secret, semi-secret um, priesthood, a caste of people who are possessed of the secret knowledge. Um, knowledge that, you know, transcends things like the mere knowledge of, of how to turn one, you know, collection of chemicals into another or manipulate the material world. This goes up into the ethereal layer of knowledge about the ultimate nature of consciousness and spirit. Oftentimes in Gnosticism, you will find a, a, a very intense dualism where uh, the spark of consciousness, the spirit, is pure and without blemish, uh, and it is trapped within the body, which is uh, akin to a clay vessel or a prison, uh, something that, you know, in some strains of Gnosticism is described as having been created by an evil demiurge, mm -hmm. uh, this sort of like sub-god that wanted to make life difficult for the real god, which is this kind of pure purity of, of absolute consciousness. And so the usual Gnostic prescription for salvation is to use the spirit or understand, achieve the knowledge of the spirit that will allow you to shatter, whether literally or figuratively, the meat body prison in which the spirit is contained and radically emancipate 
the the consciousness of spirit uh, and put it in charge of all human affairs. And you know, if you're a, a Gnostic and a you know a Democrat, a small D Democrat, or an egalitarian, uh, you would want the equal emancipation of the consciousness of all. Uh, that would be your path to to heaven on earth or heaven well beyond earth. You know, I think that that wokeness uh, tracks these developments uh, not just insofar as you know you see uh, the trans identity. Um, moving up to the top of the woke ranks, it just you know got its stripe on the woke flag, and you know that's always an indication of something. And uh, and it's already you know it's 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 already revealing that uh, I mean uh, Michel Houellebecq uh, I think pretty convincingly argued that uh, the suicide of of the West, the old West, uh, culminated in this idea that sexual satisfaction and obsession was kind of like the last thing that there was to do. Um, if you haven't read uh, Serotonin, uh, it's it's quite grueling, but also I think quite quite definitive in making in advancing that claim. Uh, but now what we're seeing in the digital age is sex uh, has a new purpose, and that purpose is as sort of a, a ferryman to get you across the uh, the river separating you from your your post humanity. Uh, you know all the sort of mentally ill millennials on social media. You know, with their uh, many different genders, and they're coming up with new flags and new identities every day. It's the 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 transhuman or posthuman trajectory of these movements is evident, and the way in which sex is being used to uh, to give people a way of accessing cyborg identities, I think, is is quite clear. And that all is wrapped up in the idea that the given human body is bad, is irredeemable, it, that it sucks to be human, that being human is kind of a form of torture, uh, that there's no way to be human and to live a just existence, and, and that technology is the way to escape from that, uh, that we need to build the tools that will crack open our identity and allow the kind of divine spark within us to have full reign. Um, that's, that's Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism has you know, spread in various ways through, I think, every different denomination of, of Christianity, every different major denomination. And it spread through uh, Judaism as well. Uh, and some of this I track in the book. And so, you know, I, I am critical of, of the way in which various uh, strains of, of Western religion have uh, allowed themselves to become sort of vessels for the parasite of, uh, of, of Gnosticism. Uh, but it's kind of equal opportunity criticism. I mean, this this strain of religious sentiment and, and feeling and, and longing has moved through them all. And, uh, you know, regardless of kind of where you position yourself religiously, uh, regardless of what your creed is, chances are you've got someone in your corner harboring Gnostic sentiments, uh, trying to figure out how uh, they can use technology to achieve their ends. So you've described the, uh, the connection to Gnosticism on the left. What about the red pill? Yeah, the red pill. Well, uh, it's there. There's a, a kind of of spiritual war going on on the right as well. Um, some uh, of the 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 new flavors of uh, of right leaning uh, culture today are very anti gnostic. Uh, you know, to a fault. They are no. It's you know, stop. Uh, stop black pilling yourself with Christianity. Stop embracing slave morality. It's all about sun and steel, just like slonk your eggs. 
and lift your weights and, you know, make sure that your, your butthole gets sun and you'll be, you know, you'll be ready for what's next. Um, and in a then tanning there, bed, preferably just, yeah, for, right. just for, you know, uh, the sake of the, the people around you. Yeah. And, uh, and then there are some more normie flavors of, of folks on the right, of course. Uh, but then you've got people on, on, you know, notionally on the right who are really um, posts, post-Christian, post-Jewish, um, and who see technology itself as a kind of God. Um, and their vision is, you know, oh, sure, you know, uh, uh, right-wing politics, you know, monarchy, uh, enlightened despotism, you know, S Singapore sounds great. Um, as long as, you know, the people who are in charge are using technology to become not quite post-human, but like superhuman. So, you know, extend life out as much as you can, you know, use technology to uh, keep your cells young forever, um, use technology to create a kind of cast of priests who uh, understand the true nature of the fabric of reality and can program computers to build kind of whatever it is that the supreme human specimens can imagine. Uh, there's some of that going around too. Um, you know, at, at a certain point, uh, that strain of thinking, I think, completely transcends categories of left and right uh, and merges uh, just into a kind of, you know, uh, uh, digitalism for its own sake. So as I said earlier, I think you have uh, telegraphed your prescriptions, but now is the time to make them explicit. Yeah. So, you know, I talked about Bitcoin and sort of the best use of Bitcoin. Um, if you let, are let not... Just interrupt for a sec. Are you a ahead. Bitcoin maximalist or are you talking no, about cryptocurrency generally? I am a human maximalist. Um, I am, I'm all about, about humaxing. Uh, in fact, uh, humaxing.com, I think, is still available for anyone who wants to go pick that up. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, cryptocurrency is not going to save our souls. Uh, but the reality is that um, if ordinary people cannot find a way to take charge of databases, to take charge of G GPUs, uh, and to use uh, the most powerful digital tools to protect and defend their humanity, uh, then they are, you know, we're all just going to be onboarded into this cyborg vivarium. And we're going to be told that, you know, you, you may as well enjoy it because this is humanity now. Um, and it's going to just kind of blur away into this collective cyborg experience. I mean, you know, <laughs> Elon Musk is an entertaining guy and he's actually doing some things in contrast to kind of other guru-like figures in tech. Um, but Elon Musk's idea of direct democracy on Mars, which I think, you know, is still something that he's on the record in favor of, uh, is to use Neuralink to combine everyone's consciousness into kind of collective, you know, telepathy and have that be the form of government, you know, and, uh, and that's not, I don't, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, it's certainly not going to work without like massive insanity and suffering. Um, and it, it, even if he, that was all considered to be worth the price of admission, uh, that form of, of order is just fundamentally hostile to, you know, in America, our form of government and to our humanity and why and for what. And his answer is like, well, we have to do this because if we don't, then the AIs are going to take over everything and we're going to be ruled by these hostile gods that we don't understand. Um, I don't think that's quite right either. Uh, it's certainly not right if ordinary people just like recognize that this 
you know, Bitcoin and other technologies, controlling databases and stuff, it might seem complicated. It might seem like out of their comfort zone. It's really not that difficult. You don't have to become like a super science expert. You don't have to convert to, uh, to, uh, to autism in order to understand how these things work. Uh, you can do it. You can participate right now. And if enough people start doing that, then, uh, you know, we're not going to be facing this kind of reduction to, to closet arrangers and, you know, to just complete slaves, the mercy of these AIs that we don't understand. We will direct technological energy toward, uh, toward protecting and reinforcing ourselves, our, our, our lineage. Uh, we will continue to think of having babies as something that is good. Uh, you know, people are worried about bringing kids into the world because they don't know what to tell them. They don't want to then return to monsters. Uh, and they don't know how to control the technology. So of course, you're not going to want to have kids under those circumstances. But if you just start right now, I mean, it's like, you know, it really is like working out. It really is like, regardless of where your fitness level is, if you just start right now getting used to this stuff, habits can be formed, the body responds, the body and the soul work together. Uh, and we can do this. We can uh, ensure that we remain human forever, that it is doable. People are doing it right now. The, the generational memory that we need to uh, ensure that, that generations coming of age with no memory of life before the smartphone uh, still recognize that being human is good and that they're, they're going to be human and that's good enough for us. That's a gift. Those of us who have kids who are that age, like now is the time to start, start making these arguments and doing the thing. Uh, that's why, you know, I've got a kid who, who falls into that category just about. Um, and, uh, you know, people of my generation, a lot of them are, are, are busy doing other things or struggling to make sense of of what to do. So I felt a calling. I had the opportunity to write this book. Uh, I, I got it out, I think in time, hopefully. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, grateful to be able to present it. I look forward to reading it. Um, but, you know, what does adopting Bitcoin and, and crypto generally do in terms of the whole process of human beings being displaced from the job market? I mean, yeah, it's, you know, a, it's a yeah. Use crypto instead of dollars. Uh, you still need to make a living somehow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think one thing that I would say is that our financial elite is basically admitted that they're on the Sea Realm podcast. A mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back. Never go back never to go its back, old dimensions. That was James Polis, and as you can tell, uh, that's not the end of the conversation, but the interview that you just heard is an hour long, so uh, you can't complain that I'm keeping most of it behind the paywall. About the last 20 minutes is going to be behind the paywall, and for those not familiar with the particular paywall in question, I'm talking about the Sea Realm Vault podcast. So the next episode will be episode number 413, and if you're not already subscribed to the Sea Realm Vault podcast, the only way to get access to it is through Patreon. My Patreon account is patreon.com slash KMO. And to get access to the Serum Vault, I'm asking for $7 a month. Some people voluntarily, I mean, there, there is no pledge level above $7 a month. Some, some people voluntarily pledge more. And uh, one person is actually paying $100 a month for that $7 subscription thank you to that person. I won't mention you by name because I don't think you want to be mentioned by name and I certainly didn't ask you about it. But uh, ironically, I think that the uh, the contents of this particular episode of the Sea Realm podcast might rub that very generous supporter the wrong way. He is a longtime champion of the rights of human beings to transcend their biological limitations. And, you know, I have this behind the paywall podcast 
that's where income from my podcasting work comes from. So I never ask for one-time donations anymore. And yet, from time to time, they still come in. So since the last time I put out a podcast, I've received one-time donations from Katrina and Seth. Seth actually donated twice in that period. So thanks to Katrina, Seth, and uh, anybody I might have forgotten, and also people who I suspect prefer to remain anonymous. Thank you all. And thanks especially to those people who do subscribe to the Serum Vault podcast. And listeners to that podcast know that uh, after a conversation like the one I just had with James Polis, I could easily go on an hour-long ramble, or rant, you might call it, about those topics. I can't do that now because in exactly 15 minutes' time, I have an interview scheduled. It's not even an interview. It's a conversation with the angry animator, Dermot O'Connor, uh, a, a longtime favorite, I think, of listeners to the Sea Realm Vault podcast. So... The last 20 minutes of my conversation with James Polis will be in Sea Realm Vault podcast, episode number 413, and thereafter you'll hear at least the beginning of my conversation with Dermot O'Connor. All right, well, the train has pulled into the station here in Bellows Falls. I'm not speaking metaphorically, I'm talking about Amtrak, and uh, they tend to blow that horn again and again, but I can't sit here and wait for them to stop. So if you hear the train horn, well, so be it. Atmospheric sounds. I think there might be a point or two on which I disagree with James, but it is my explicit stated policy never to score points on a guest after the recorded conversation is over. To me, that's just in poor taste. So I will definitely reinforce the amen that I gave him during the conversation, which is that humans don't suck. Yeah, we're not always at our greatest, and humans do commit terrible crimes and atrocities and acts of malevolence upon one another but it doesn't define us. It's not all that we are. So I said that I'd read the uh, Wikipedia definition to you. Before I do that, though, I'm going to share with you the exact definition of the word vivarium, because I looked it up, <laughs> and the phrase cyborg vivarium is, uh, is catchy, it's evocative, it's the title of this episode, so here we go. Vivarium, an enclosure, container, or structure adapted or prepared for keeping animals under semi-natural conditions for observation or study or as pets, an aquarium or terrarium. So aquarium and terrarium are types of vivarium. All right, and now, strapping on my metaphorical hip waders, we go to Wikipedia. Here is the Wikipedia entry for the Claremont Institute. This is just the above the table of contents, you know, encapsulation. The Wikipedia editorial staff wants you to think the following about the Claremont Institute. The Claremont Institute is a conservative think tank based in Upland, California. The institute was founded in 1979 by four students of Henry V. Jaffa. And that's... V is his middle name. That's not Henry versus Jaffa. It's a man named Henry V. Jaffa. The institute publishes the Claremont Review of Books, as well as other books and publications. The institute was an early supporter of Donald Trump. After Joe Biden won the 2020 election and Donald Trump refused to concede while making false claims of fraud, Claremont Institute senior fellow John Eastman aided Trump in his failed attempts to overturn the election results. According to Wikipedia, the 40-plus-year-old Claremont Institute is defined by what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And uh, if, if that didn't drive it home enough, I'm not going to read any more of it to you, but the next two sections under the table of contents are history. So this is the 40-plus-year history of the Claremont Institute. And... To that 40-year history, Wikipedia devotes 249 words. Then the next section is labeled 
Trump Advocacy and Connections, to which they devote 290 words. Again, I say this often, when I had money, you know, for those of you who are new to the podcast, I was a very early employee at Amazon.com, and in my late 20s, I had a fat wad of cash dropped on me. Uh, took me about a decade to spend it all, and then I got to re-enter re the job market, basically broke with a decade-size hole in my resume. It was a learning experience. But when I had money, I gave it away fairly freely, and uh, I gave some of it to Wikipedia. And since then, they have sent me regular pleas for more money. And for a time, when I couldn't afford it, I just, you know, ignored the messages, didn't respond to them. These days, I tend to respond and tell them, no way, no effing way am I giving you any more money as long as this is your editorial policy. Does it sink in? I don't know. All right, well, clearly I have more to say on the topics covered in this episode of the C-Realm podcast, but I don't have time to say them now. So tune in to future episodes, and if you can, check out the C-Realm Vault podcast. Again, to get that, you need to go to my Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash KMO. I also do a weekly, ideally, a weekly webcomic, and you can find that at geb.io. That's G-E-B-B dot I-O. Geb stands for Greater Earth Betterment Bureau. It is a comic strip about aliens who live in an underground base under Antarctica. They, uh, they do abduct people and give them anal probes, but they don't like doing it. They only do it because it's their job. So the tagline for the strip is, if you love the Earth but hate your job, join Geb, the Greater Earth Betterment Bureau. All right, and with that self-promoting out of the way, I'm out. Stay well.